I mean, I spent my summers in rural southwest Mississippi. We would fly into New Orleans, drive 100 miles to southwest Mississippi, and the nearest town would be 45 minutes away. Uh, it would be like a 40-minute drive to Piggly Wiggly. <laughs> a lot of my family is from like St. Augustine, which is like really, really small and rural. Red dirt, like walk around barefoot, like you driving at eight years old, like. <laughs> so growing up, like a lot of my time was spent outside, just playing in the dirt, making mud pies, you know, throwing pine cones at your cousins. Like I have like, again, 50 living cousins. So like grew up around like a lot of family. My grandparents um, owned a chicken farm. They also kept hogs. Um, I remember playing at the ponds. I remember when my grandfather would wake us up early and we would participate in the pig slaughter or also he made us participate in helping a cow give birth to a cow. Um, growing up, I was always with my cousins. We were always playing crazy games, y'all. We would play like Fear Factor. We would play like Michael Myers. Like who plays Michael Myers as a kid? Like who like does that? So we would just kind of be this like big gang of kids <laughs> with minimal adult supervision. Um, but then I mean, there wasn't much to do or there weren't that many ways to get into trouble, so it was fine. Always at my grandma's house where she's like gardening, where she's cooking, like, I remember like every time I think about my grandma, I, I think about like stale menthols and like like the traces of like Budweiser, like they and mixed with like white diamonds. Like that's what I think about when I think about my grandma. Um, I think about like like while she's making dumplings from scratch and her letting me have a corner of like the dough, right? Uh, my grandfather made his own sausages and bacon, so that was. Yeah, I got to see that process. What I loved about my grandparents is that they allowed us to be kids. Like they allowed us to like to really have fun and like be out there in the country and get dirty. That like one of my favorite things is to get dirty now. Like I remember when my mama used to live with my papa and my grandma while she was still raising us. I would like around like like three years old, I would sneak out of the house and go out to the field like where the pins are, where the dogs are. And they'll be like, where's D at? And she's out there playing with those damn dogs again, right? Like, so it was just like really fun. I think it made me much more in touch with the land than I would have otherwise been. You're listening to Natal. You're listening to Natal. You are listening to Natal. You're listening to Natal, a podcast about having a baby. Having a baby. Having a baby while Black. Hey, y'all. Welcome back to Natal. Welcome, welcome. It's been a while since we've done this. It really has, but it feels good to be back. It really does. I'm one of your hosts, Martina Abraham Zalunga. And I'm Gabrielle Horton. It's really hard to believe, you know, we started working on Natal in 2019. And we were just really interested in hearing from Black birthing parents about what their pregnancy, childbirth, and postpartum experiences were like. We wanted to know how they were being cared for and how they felt about it all. So when the pandemic hit in 2020 and our first season was released, it felt like these questions became that much more urgent. In addition to families, we also heard from birth workers, providers, and advocates from around the country who had their own stories to share. And our first season touched on everything, 
from doula services and pregnancy loss to fertility treatments and home births. Their stories highlighted the beautiful traditions of granny midwives, the incredible ways that loved ones rally around new parents, and even the fraught relationship Black people have with the healthcare system. And as the weeks went on, it was clear that these firsthand accounts were really resonating with so many. There was press and awards and best podcast lists, but honestly, the sweetest gift of all for our entire team have been the emails, the DMs, the voicemails, all the love from Black parents, many of whom told us what it meant to them to not just hear stories about them, but to hear themselves in these stories. And that really was powerful for us. Absolutely. And we knew that these stories were just the tip of the iceberg and that there were so many other journeys to parenthood that deserved to be uplifted. So when we started thinking about season two, we wanted to talk to folks we hadn't yet. And for us, that was Black rural families. We wanted to know all about their care experiences. Where do they go for care and who's caring for them? So this season, we're doing exactly that. Getting ready for this season, Martina and I spent a lot of time thinking about our own connections to rural life. We are both the grandchildren of the Great Migration, which was a movement of six million Black people from the rural South to cities in the Midwest, Northeast, and the West Coast, roughly from around the 1910s through the 1970s. And my mom's side was a part of this. They came from Texarkana, Texas, and Quichai, Louisiana. And they eventually made their way to California in the 1940s. And honestly, it's where my family and I have called home ever since. And my dad's parents were rooted in Selma and Safford, Alabama. And in the 1950s, they left for New York City. My grandparents would eventually settle just outside of the Bronx in Rockland County. So most of my family was raised in the tri-state area. And it's where I live today. But while we've seen family photo albums and have heard memories passed down over the years, neither of us have ever been to these places or even lived in rural areas ourselves. Those beautiful stories that you heard at the top from Delia Jones and Dr. Ariana Planey, reminiscing about their childhoods in the rural South, well, they stand in stark contrast to widely held misbeliefs and popular depictions of rural people. And so, like, a lot of people go into these communities having stereotypes about these, like, country bunkins and stuff. People think that we're dumb. People think that we're, like, we don't know anything. And it's just like, no, we, we're doing what we can with what we have. There's also a tendency to treat rural residents as people who don't have knowledge that matters. People don't have ways of doing, ways of being that matter. That... They may be people who should be condescended upon. And so after talking to them and many other rural healthcare workers and advocates around the country, it was really important early on for our production team to figure out what exactly does rural mean. After quick searches on Google, Merriam-Webster, several government agency sites, including the U.S. Census Bureau, it was clear that we were going to need to dig a whole lot deeper to find some answers. And so what made for a fun challenge was realizing that defining rurality was going to look, feel, and sound different depending on who we asked. 
So I guess in terms of where I think of remoteness from amenities, um, maybe the composition of jobs in an area, um, first thing people think of is agriculture. That's Dr. Planey again. She's a medical and health geographer and an assistant professor at the University of North Carolina. Talking to her was really interesting because even she wrestles with this question daily in her work. So there's like 13 different definitions of rural and which one you use depends on the federal agency that's funding your research. From the standpoint of uh, researchers using these definition, if we have to be very clear about what rural urban definition we're using in our research. But from a policy standpoint, the classifications you use are consequential. They can, they can determine whether healthcare facilities or providers get funded or are eligible for federal po- like pockets of money. And as you can imagine, having so many definitions can really impact how people access care. So this season, to try to simplify things some, we decided to use a couple different definitions for rural. The first is from the Federal Health Resources and Services Agency, which provides care to people in geographically and economically isolated areas. And the other definition, well, it's based on how the people you'll meet this season define their own communities and what rural means to them. So once we had that sorted, our next step was to understand who lives there. After all, 60 million people call it home. And of that, 18 million women of reproductive age live there too. And while it tends to be older and whiter than the country as a whole, people of color account for most of rural population growth in recent years. One in five residents are people of color. And of that, 40% are Black. And across these regions, Black folks tend to experience higher rates of underemployment and a 13% poverty rate, nearly double that of white residents. And that's also the case in the South, where the majority of Black rural folks live, heavily concentrated in the Black Belt, a region stretching from Texas all the way to Virginia. The name was originally a nod to the region's Black and fertile soil. It's where enslaved Africans and the crops they grew were most profitable in the plantation economy. Over time, the name took on a new, more political meaning to describe counties where Black people outnumbered whites. So as one might guess... All of those dynamics are still very much at play there. But even beyond the Black Belt, Black folks, well, (laughs) we live everywhere. Yes, we do. You can find us in rural New England, the Great Plains, the Southwest. Heck, we are even tucked away into the island of Hawaii, okay? (laughs) And all of these places have their own traditions and culture. For Delia Jones, that's what makes rural communities so damn special. It's ghetto. It's 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 raunchy. It's rowdy. It's it's eloquent. It's like regal. Like all of these different things. There's just so much nuance to it, right? And so, like one thing I always just wish is that we saw more nuance in that as well. Is like they're not all the same. We really enjoyed talking to Delia, who you also heard earlier on. She's a freelance journalist and the former director of engagement for the Texas Observer. She's a seventh generation Afro Texan born and raised in deep East Texas, the city of Lufkin to be exact. And it was pretty awesome because we even got to work with her on a few episodes this season. Yeah, we did. Can't wait for you all to hear some of those too. And as you can imagine, naturally our time with Delia would often lead to conversations about the state of journalism today and how the media talks about rural America, about places like her hometown and families like hers. 
media for me gets it wrong for one because they paint rural areas as white. And so like whenever media covers these areas, it pisses me off that they try to paint it with one broad stroke without even contextualizing a lot of these places with like the historical analysis that it's needed, right? Like we don't talk like the East Texas again is so segregated, right? We don't talk about why a certain county or why a certain town decided to vote a certain way, right? Like I wish that instead of white people or like these like big corporate like news media outlets, I wish that they would give these rural areas the mic themselves without necessarily feeling like they can tell those folks' stories. I'm Shayla Brown. I'm Eric Brown. Um, I'm from the Mississippi Delta. It's a small town, so I don't usually isolate it to one place because it was in between a lot of places, so I just leave it at the Mississippi Delta. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I'm from the other side of the state, the eastern side of the state. Columbus is on the state line with Alabama. Well, aloha. My name is Ciara Gardenia Vaughn Hunter, and yes, I was born with that name. And my my husband's last name is Morning, so now it's Ciara Gardenia Vaughn Hunter Morning. I was born in Hollywood, California. I lived there until I was 29 when I moved to Hawaii. My name's Anasia Sturdivant. I use pronouns she, her, hers. And um, I'm 34 years old and living in Ames, Iowa. So, you just heard of the four parents we'll be following this season on Natal. And the best part is that all of us get to spend more time with them and their families this time around. Of course, you'll hear all about their birth stories, but we're also going deeper to better understand their childhoods, the first lessons they received about their bodies, the moments they even decided to become parents, and how they wanted to be cared for through it all. And in true Natal fashion, You'll hear from the care providers and advocates who are literally doing the work. From a midwife in Hawaii to abortion fund organizers in the Southeast. And this season even gets a little experimental too. Our team pays homage to our favorite R&B albums with interludes featuring members of the Alabama Birth Collective sprinkled throughout. You know, in many ways, this season is really about reaching back and celebrating the traditions, brilliance, and wisdom of our ancestors who found home in rural America. So join us as we head home to hear how Black families are birthing new life and legacies exactly where they are. And hopefully this collection of stories encourages you to slow down and to remember that we, as Black folks, we know the way. Yes. We always have. Mm. We know what's best for our bodies, our lives, our families, and our homes too. Amen to that.